Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it is Father's Day, and um, you know, there are many different experiences folks have had with dads, right? In fact, I was watching 2020 this past week. Uh, uh, well, actually, I wasn't watching 2020. I was seeing the commercials, and I had to not watch it because the commercials were irritating me. But the byline was, with parents like these, um, kind of implying with parents like these, who needs parents, maybe? I don't know. Um, and a couple of the, the storylines were about mothers who had abandoned their, their families, just took off to find themselves or something like that. Moms, you know you want to do that sometimes. We, we appreciate that you don't, and we're glad that you stick it out. Um, and then in the uh, fair, fair, fair Air Doctrine, they had to give some time to, to bad dads. And so uh, uh, they had a little package made up for dads who were not good with uh, raising children, and they had all these clips uh, that showed dads being bad dads um, that have gone viral on YouTube and other things. One was a dad who parked his kid at SeaWorld in the splash zone for one of those amusement park rides, um, and the kid was in a, in a in one of those strollers, and the dad stepped back, and the water just smashed the kid. And that's a bad dad, but it's a funny dad. Um, other, other highlights were dads trying to, you know, the lengths they'd go to catch a fly ball at the ballpark, you know, and, and one dad kind of just... The kid went out the arm to get the ball, and he was next to his wife, and the wife was giving him the look of death, like, what's wrong with you? And at that moment, they asked the psychologist, what is wrong with dads? And, uh, and the, the, the host said, are we just dumber than women? And, and the, the, the doctor of psychology said, yes. And I said, I resemble that remark. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of irritated me, but his history is full of bad dads. Um, there have been some really bad fathers in this world. Um, perhaps you feel your dad would make one of those top ten lists, I don't know, but uh, uh, Herod the Great, who was uh, over Judea at the time of Jesus' life, um, he killed several of his wives, and then he killed three of his sons uh, because he was tad paranoid, and he thought they all had it out for him. Ivan the Terrible. Uh, he uh, had his daughter, uh, who was pregnant at the time, beaten um, to the point that she miscarried. And, and then his son, who was angry at that, uh, objected. And, the, and Ivan the Terrible took his scepter and clobbered his son in the head. And uh, he died several days later from that injury. Um, uh, there's been a lot of bad dads in history. Um, Fortunately for us as believers, the image of bad dad doesn't have to be something that we hold on to. Because the scriptures are, are full of this word, Father. I should not say the scriptures are full. The, the New Testament is full of the word Father. And, and Jesus is the one that introduces this terminology for God to us in the Lord's Prayer. You remember the Lord's Prayer? You said it just a little bit ago, and, and that was one of the first occurrences uh, that Jesus ever used the word Father to refer to God. And if you remember in that, that, that teaching there, Jesus is teaching the disciples how they should pray. 
And so he's not saying, I'm God's one and only son, so I'm the only one that can call him father. He's saying, no, when you pray, pray like this, our father. And so he's inviting us into that relationship, into that opportunity to address God as father. Now, we've been looking at the Beatitudes the last couple of weeks, and we are about to make a shift uh, in this discussion of the Beatitudes because the first four Beatitudes have to do with characteristics or qualities that we need to have in order to become followers of Jesus. Uh, characteristics or qualities that we need to have in order to be a Christian. Um, and, and, and real quick, just for uh, reminder's sake, the, the first one is to be poor in spirit, to realize that your problems are too much for you to handle, that, that you will never be able to solve your problems. That the, the main problem of your life is you. And you can't solve you. You can't fix you. You are beyond help. But lots of people profit off of you. It's called self-help. And that industry is going gangbusters. Um, And if it worked, self-help would go out of business. But it doesn't work. Because one of the things that you have to realize, the second thing, is you have to mourn. Once you realize you're poor in spirit, that you are beyond help, that you can't help yourself, you mourn this fact because really the deep down problem in you, it's not psychological, it's not emotional, it's not physical. The really deep-rooted problem in you and in me is sin. That's the deep problem in all of us. And there's nothing any of us can do to fix that. We just showed up on planet Earth and we used words like mine and no. And go away, <laughs> right? I mean, we just showed up and we didn't even have to have a class on how to, how to be selfish, 101. How to be greedy, you know? Uh, how to be, we, we just figured that out. We just came hardwired. We were able to do that. And, and part of being ready to become a Christian is to understand that your problems are beyond your fixing. You can't fix them. That Jesus Christ does not offer a self help remedy that Christ offers salvation to you by by surrendering your life to him and and really at sin's core is the desire to control your life to do what you want to do when you want to do it that's really at the core of of your problems and my problems is I want to be in charge of me I own me so I should be in charge of me And what the Beatitudes teach is, no, you need to mourn that. That's not true, that you're owned by God and you need to surrender your life to Him. And after we we mourn, because these are sequential, we realize we're poor in spirit, we mourn, and then we are meek. We humble ourselves. And we realize, I can't do anything to fix this. I need to humble myself and find a Savior to fix me. And then the fourth one, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I want to develop that a little bit more today because uh, we looked at that last week. And so I'm kind of going to hit a couple of of things real quick. But um, let's just read those verses in Matthew real quick. Matthew 5, 1 through 7 or so that we're going to consider this morning. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so what Jesus is doing here is he first, with those first four, is telling us, in order to qualify for kingdom life, in order to be a subject of the kingdom, in order to get in, you've got to have these first four characteristics about you. You've got to be poor in spirit. You've got to mourn. You've got to be meek. And you've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a concept that's difficult for us to understand, like I said last week, because most of us aren't terribly hungry most of the time. We, we eat when we're hungry and we eat when we're not. We just eat because um, food's available. And very few of us have probably ever experienced what true hunger is. And Christ is saying that we should want righteousness to the point that we want food and drink. And not only that, we want a righteousness that's not ours. If you had it, you wouldn't hunger and thirst for it. You would just have it. And this is a, a righteousness that's not ours. And, and this is a righteousness that we hunger and thirst for because we need it to open up doors for us that can't be opened otherwise. We need a record that will open doors for us. Now, some of you thought, what does a vinyl record have to do with this? Some of you are thinking, what's a vinyl record? <laughs> and really what I'm talking about is, is like a record of service. A service record. Like, let's say you were a major league baseball player. And uh, you retired at the grand old age of 37. And, and you had been a five-time Cy Young Award winner. Or, or maybe you're a great hitter, and, and so you had uh, you you led the league in uh, batting average, or maybe you won the triple crown one time, where you you led in batting average and RBIs and in home runs, and and maybe you were just a prolific baseball player, and maybe you're going to be a future Hall of Famer, and, and that record of Major League Baseball service opens up to you doors that are closed to other people. It opens up to you opportunities that are closed up off to you. It opens up the opportunity for certain marriages to occur or remarriages or remarriages to occur that other people would never get to experience or have. It opens up opportunities in business. It opens up opportunities to be like, I don't know, an MLB uh, TV announcer that other people wouldn't have because you are a major league baseball player who was a great ball player. Or maybe military service. You, you come back from serving uh, your country and you're a decorated veteran. And that opens up to you opportunities in different areas that, it, that other people who lack that record can't open. And all of us know at some level that we need a record to open up opportunities with God that we don't otherwise have. And if we're all honest, I mean, even, even those of you who don't agree with much of what I say, if we're all honest, you would have to say that the only way to have good enough record to open up the doors with God is you would have to have a perfect record. That your record would have to be perfect. So five Cy Young Awards over a you know, 20-year career is not good enough to open up the doors with God. You should have been the Cy Young Award winner every single year. Uh, you should have won every game. You should have never struck out or in military service. You know, you shouldn't have got shot in the first place that got you that one award. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of records that open up doors for us. 
But the question really of our hearts is which record opens up the door, the opportunities with God that we want? And you see, we're hungering and thirsting for that. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a record that's not our own. And Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. One that you and I could not live, but we should have. I mean, you know you should have lived perfectly. That's why you woke up this morning and had regrets. Because you regretted something you did in the last day or in the last week or in the last month or in the last year. Something in your life you regret. That's why we you know, gravitate to songs like you know, talk about living without regrets. Because we all can relate. Because we all have regrets. That song wouldn't mean anything to people who didn't have regrets. I, mean, I don't know what that guy's talking about. I've never had a regret in my life. Jesus doesn't get that song. He doesn't understand it. Because he doesn't have any regrets. Because he never said something he shouldn't have said. He never treated somebody in a way he shouldn't have treated them. He never thought a thought he should never have thought of. He never withheld giving somebody what he should have given them. He did everything perfectly. And his record, when it's applied to you through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, when you believe in that, his record is applied to you and doors are open for you that otherwise remain closed. Do you hunger and thirst for that? Do you want this righteousness that can't possibly be your own? And that's one of the qualifiers to be a kingdom subject. You know, there's this Old Testament story, the story of Joseph. And some of you know it, some of you don't. Some of you have seen the flanograph and some of you haven't. Some of you are wondering, what is flanograph? (laughs) Some of you have seen the VeggieTale version of it probably. But Joseph was a a young man. uh, He was the youngest of 12 brothers. And his brothers didn't like him because Joseph was kind of clueless. And he was a younger brother. What can you say? And so they didn't like his mouth sometimes. He was kind of cocky. He said, you know, someday you're all going to bow down to me. Uh, even mom and dad are going to bow down to me. I'm somebody special. You're not. And that would kind of get on the, you know, the nerves of older brothers. And so the older brothers decided to kill him. And they didn't quite kill him, but they might as well have because they sold him into slavery into a foreign land. And he went into Egypt. And in Egypt... God had favor upon Joseph, and he rose in the land. To one point, he was, he was second in command in Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh in the land. And his brothers show up one day. Now, Joseph has gone over under an extreme makeover in the years that have ensued. Jo- Joseph has grown up, number one. Joseph doesn't have any hair because... Uh, He lives in Egypt, and they don't like hair on the face, so they shave off your head, they shave off your eyebrows, and they shave off your beard, and so he doesn't have any facial hair of any kind, and he's powerful, and his brothers don't recognize him. I mean, you thought this kid's brother's been dead a long time, you wouldn't recognize him either. Besides that, he doesn't have any eyebrows. I mean, have you ever seen anybody without eyebrows? And so they see it. Joseph and they don't recognize him. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, though. And at one point in the story, there's this tension that builds. Because you wonder, what is Joseph, the second most powerful man in the ancient world? Because Egypt was the superpower back then. The second most powerful man in the ancient world. What is he going to do to his brothers? What would you do? The brothers that sold you into slavery. The brothers that lied to your dad about what happened to you. The brothers that made you suffer this lifetime away from family. 
Well, he reveals himself to his brothers and his brothers are scared because they realize he has the power to take away their lives. And as he comes, they feel on their neck, instead of a cold sword, they feel warm tears. And Joseph says, it's because of God that you sold me into slavery. It's because of God that I died, but now I am alive again. And I am second to the king so that you might live. And do you see how the relationship with Jesus plays in your life? That Jesus died for you, but now he's seated next to the king so that you can have life. And instead of getting the cold sword of God's judgment, you can experience warm tears from God the Father. And if you crave that, if you hunger and thirst for that, then you know what it's like to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's not your own. And you know what it's like to hunger and thirst for a savior to save you from these problems that are greater than what you can bear. Problems that you can't solve. Oprah can't help you with them. Dr. Phil's not going to do it. Doc Oz has no clue how to help you with this. You mourn that. You humble yourself. And you thirst for a savior. Now at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus switches gears. It's like we've been on a a trek in the woods, and, and we get to one of those clearings where you can see out. And you can look out. You know, you've been on those hikes, right? And you get to those vistas, they call them. You get to a view, and you look, and it's almost sin to keep walking at that point, right? I mean, partly because you're tired, and you need a drink, or you need an energy bar or something, but partly because, oh my gosh, look at that view. And you just got to stop and you got you to take it in. And it's kind of like what's going on in this text where Jesus is taking us to, here's what it looks like to be a kingdom subject. And some of you read those things and you're not quite on board with those. And, and I understand. And, and I would have words to say to you. And those are, you're not in the kingdom yet. You have an opportunity today to be in the kingdom. But if you don't understand that, you're not in the kingdom and Jesus now pauses briefly and he, he looks ahead at the next things of, of what our lives will look like as a result of being kingdom subjects. He's, he's, he's shifting gears. This is what it means. This is how you become a kingdom subject. And now as you're a kingdom subject, this is how you live. This is what your life will be like. And the first one is this. We, we saw it on the screen. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The first quality of a disciple of Jesus, the first quality of a kingdom subject, of a a, a subject of King Jesus, is that they are merciful people. (laughs) When you think of church people, do you think of merciful people? Anybody? Are church people in the kingdom then? Think about that one. I mean, that'll cause smoke to come out of your ears for a bit. Because according to Jesus, according to Jesus, the guy who's in charge of the kingdom, because he's the king, the way you know you're a kingdom subject is that you are a merciful person. And if you're a merciful person, you will show mercy. Now, what does mercy mean? Maybe we haven't seen mercy in church people because we just don't know what mercy is. 
I mean, maybe we think it's something nice, but it's really mean-spirited, like, you know, judging people or something. <laughs> maybe there's some kind of redefinition that we don't understand. Well, let's try to figure this out real quick. Now, there's a difference between grace and mercy. Grace, you can be a gracious person and not a merciful person. But you can't be a merciful person and not be a gracious person. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, grace is when you... Is when you give somebody, give help to someone who doesn't deserve it. Grace is when you give help to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And so that's one of the things our church tries to do. We, we try to be a gracious church. So we often have offerings. We do the Advent Conspiracy offering. And we do the Deacon Fund offering. And the elders in our committee that gives away those funds, we sit around and we often hear about folks who need help. <laughs> And recently we heard about some folks and, and, and part of the discussion was, you know, they don't deserve it. And then it was quickly said, well, I don't deserve any of the help I get. And so we voted, yeah, let's give it away. And so we were being gracious. We were giving help to somebody who didn't deserve it. But that's very different than being merciful. Grace is giving help to somebody who doesn't deserve it. But mercy is feeling being, being motivated by empathy or feeling about somebody's predicament. It, it's, like, it's like when you hear a story about somebody's life circumstances and you are motivated to do something about it. It's like when you watch scenes from the tornado in Oklahoma or the fire in Black Forest or the Hurricane Sandy. And you see those things, and yeah, I'm going to grab my, my cell phone, and I'm going to text to that number. <laughs> uh, you're moved by an emotion. And that's more what mercy is. Mercy is when you have empathy, when you have feeling, and you're prompted, you're moved out of that feeling to give to somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's a very different thing. Because you can give to somebody who doesn't deserve it and not feel anything. Yeah, here you don't deserve it, but here I feel like I'm supposed to give it to you. But you can also give because it's like, oh gosh, did you hear what happened? It's horrible. What can we do to help? And so mercy is when we are prompted by a deep emotion, a deep empathy for the suffering of somebody else. In the text it says, we will be merciful people. We will be people the people of the church, the people of the kingdom, are people who are deeply motivated, deeply moved by the suffering of other people. Is that true of you and I? I mean, there's times, right, that that's true of you and I. But is it always true of you and I? And what does it mean? What does this actually, let, let's get some boots on the ground here. What does this actually mean to be merciful? Help me out with that. I think the, the main two ways you're merciful is you are forgiving and you give. And you are a costly giver. You're forgiving and you're a costly giver. Now what does that mean? Well, forgiving, there is always a debt to be paid in forgiveness. Let's for, say, for instance, my son who decided to, to occasionally kick his soccer ball against the side of the church happens to hit a window of the church. And let's say the elders 
feel gracious that day. Not, you know, it's not mercy yet because we don't feel much about it, but it's gracious. Yeah, he doesn't deserve it, but we'll forgive him of it. Actually, that's mercy because of my definition. But anyways, <laughs> we choose to forgive Dave instead of making him pay. I just gave it away. Who, which gave it away. We choose to forgive him instead of make him pay. Now, it doesn't just, you know, all of a sudden the cost of the window doesn't go out, out the window. It's not, like, it's not like there's no cost to replace it. There is a cost, but who absorbs the cost? Is it the offender or is it the one offended? When you forgive, you're choosing to absorb the cost, absorb the debt of the wrong. You're choosing to say, you know what? Yeah, you knocked my lamp off the table. I forgive you. To not forgive is to say, hey, that lamp's worth $1,000. Hand it over. To not forgive is to, to hold them accountable for the debt they owe you. And mercy says, I forgive you of that debt. I will absorb the cost of that debt myself. Doesn't mean the debt's gone. Just means it comes out of my pocket. My resources. Not the one who offended me. The other one. Costly giving. And you see this in a parable, a story that Jesus told. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And a man who is moved to have mercy on an injured person. And not just move like, oh, that's horrible. Here's, here's some help. He gave him help, but what he did was he picked him up, he bandaged his wounds, he took care of him, he got him medical help, he put him up in the hospital for a few days, he put him up in the hotel for a few days, he got him food, he took care of the man at much cost to himself, at a great cost to himself. And whenever we say, I can't help with that right now, we are choosing to not be burdened by something. Because to, to, to really be a merciful person is to bear others' burdens. And what does it mean to bear others' burdens? Well, if I'm trying to move something that weighs 100 pounds, and you come over and offer help, but all you do is grab part of it with your <laughs> index finger, you are not bearing burden unless you are freakishly strong. <laughs> it doesn't mean that to bear the burden means you have to shoulder some of the burden. And so if it's a 100-pound log I'm trying to move and you say, hey, let me give a hand to that, you have to take on 20 of the pounds or 50 of the pounds or sometimes 80 pounds because I can only do 20, whatever that looks like. You have to shoulder some of the burden. And that comes at a cost to you. And so to give in a costly way means that it costs you something. It comes at a personal cost. And so a merciful person chooses personal giving. They absorb the cost in forgiveness. They absorb the cost in bearing others' burdens. And Jesus says, if you are a member of the kingdom, this is true of you. This is what you look like. Do you look like that? Now, when I struggle with mercy, because some of you are thinking, oh man. I mean, there's some people that are easy to show mercy to, but other people, I'm not quite so sure. And the frustrating thing with Jesus is he didn't say, 
uh, you know, forgive people when they come groveling on all fours and, and kiss your toes and go, I was so wrong, I'm so sorry. You know, he says, forgive them. As soon as you think about the wrong they've done towards you, forgive them. And you think, how on earth could I ever do that? And again, we go back to poor in spirit. You can't do that. Your problems are too big for you to solve, including some of the sins that have been committed against you, including some of the debts that are owed you. They're too big for you to solve. They're too big for you to forgive. They're too big for you to collect on. And you need a savior. You need somebody you need somebody who, who can lead by example and show you what this looks like. And so when I struggle with forgiveness, when I struggle with mercy, do you know what I do? I remember Jesus on the cross. Think about it. God, how many days did he take to create earth? I mean, depending on who you talk to, either six little days or six epochs, whatever that means, right? It didn't take him long. And how did he do it? This is the interactive part of the sermon because I'm starting to lose some of you. <laughs> he spoke. He spoke, right? Let there be light. There's light. Don't you love that song we just sang? He wraps himself in light. Try that sometime. You know? He wraps himself in light. I don't know what that looks like other than like Christmas lights all wrapped around me. But anyway, <laughs> God wraps himself in light. He spoke light into being. He said, let there be dirt. Let there be water. Let there be animals. Let there be... He spoke. But when it came to forgiveness for you and for me, he didn't say, let there be forgiveness. Weird, huh? Why didn't he do that? That would have been a lot easier. Because he couldn't. I mean, God, he could not do that. Seriously, he couldn't do that. God can't do certain things. Like, he can't make a stone so big he can't move it. Just so you know that. And that's the answer to the question. He can't do that, because that's stupid. God doesn't do stupid. Now, the interesting thing is, he had to send his son to pay a price. A costly, personal price. To render your forgiveness. He couldn't just speak it into being. There had to be. There had to be. Debt pay. And to kill you and I a million times over. Still wouldn't have paid the debt. There had to be a debt pay. He couldn't just speak it into being. There had to be a debt to pay because the lamp was still broken. You still have to pay for it. The window's still broken. You still have to fix it. You still have to pay for it. The debt had to be paid. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived this perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died on the cross, the death that you and I should have died. He died on this cross. And whenever I struggle with being a merciful person, I look at the cost that my own salvation cost my father. I look at the personal angst that Jesus went to. And it started the night before, didn't it? I mean, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think at that very moment, he's thinking, you know what? I could pull a Superman and just out of here. I could just bolt out of here. I don't have to go through with this. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. 
Let's just send a flood and start over again, Dad. Oh, we did that whole rainbow thing. Okay, let's do fire this time. You know, or whatever the idea they come dream up with. But no, they were committed to the plan. And the plan was, we're going to save them. We're going to do it. And this is the way we're going to do it. And Jesus, I'm sorry, you pulled the short straw. You're the one that gets to die on the cross. And the night before, Jesus knows what's coming. And he's been abandoned by everybody. The disciples can't even stay awake long enough to hang out with their pal Jesus on his last night before he dies. And he's in the garden and he's praying. And the text tells us he is praying, sweating blood. He is so troubled by what awaits him that the capillaries in his skin are bursting. He is so in anguish. And he resolves, not my will, but yours be done. And I don't know, I, I've been married 20 years now. And if Marnie ever one morning woke up and she looked at me and she says, I hate you and meant it. She's never said that. <laughs> if she says that, I hate you and I want anything to do with you, that would really hurt. That would hurt more than one of my kids saying that. Because Marnie and I have chosen life together. And it's the most intimate relationship that a man and a woman can experience on planet Earth is marriage. And if at some point in this marriage she turned to me and said, I hate you. I want to be as far from you as possible. That would hurt. And some of you ex have experienced that. I, I've, I've been blessed and I haven't experienced that. And Jesus... He experienced separation from the Father that was far greater than even divorce feels to us. Because from eternity past, he had forever been in perfect fellowship with God the Father. There had never been a rupture in that relationship. They'd always gotten along. No one had ever said anything that hurt the other's feelings. There had never been a rift. Could you imagine a relationship like that? We'd probably make some drama just to throw in some excitement, right? Because we'd be like... This is going too well. <laughs> and that night, Jesus is thinking, God the Father is about to abandon me. God the Father is about to turn his back on me. And I have no clue what that is going to be like. Could you imagine the fear the Son of God must have felt if he felt fear? Can you imagine the anguish? And Jesus still chose the cross. And when I look at the personal cost to Jesus on the cross, that motivates me to be a merciful person. Because he gives an example. He shows me it can be done. It's going to hurt, and there's great personal cost. That's the definition of mercy. Entering into the suffering of others. Entering into the burden, the shouldering of the burden of others. Imagine a group of people. Imagine if just 50% of us did that. Imagine if 50% of the church, 50% of the people who come here regularly decided, you know what, I'm going to be a person who forgives. No matter what. I'm going to be a person 
who forgives. That's what I do because mercy has been shown to me. I'm going to show mercy. So more mercy can be shown to me. I'm going to forgive. And I am going to shoulder people's burdens. I'm going to give costly to myself so I can help other people. Imagine if 50% of the people here did that. You know what they would call this place? A church. They'd call this a church. Because that's what the church is. Because that's what Jesus says the church is. That's who the people are that make up the church. They are merciful people. Are you a merciful person? Do you forgive? And do you give? You know, next week we're going to take a look at the last three of the Beatitudes. And we're going to see that Jesus has a mission for us. And I read this article last week about a man who got to interview young atheists, young men and women who, who became atheists at some point in their life. And there was an interesting uh, fact. In fact, I, I shared it on my Facebook feed. If you're my Facebook friend, you can read the article. And, and, and it's interesting because he found some eye-popping things that were similar in all these kids' lives. Do you know one of the big ones was? Many of them grew up in church. Many of these kids who turned to atheism in their teens and in their early college years, they grew up in the church. And one of the things that they regularly said was, I never understood how Jesus relates to my everyday life. And I never was part of a church that had any kind of vision or mission. It was just a bunch of people getting together and going through the motions. And in this part of the Beatitudes, we see that Jesus has a game plan. The king needs boots on the ground. Soldiers. I've never been able to say that word very well. Soldiers in place. He's got marching orders. So we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so merciful to us. we struggle with mercy, I pray that um, maybe in a supernatural way in the next few days, you would just overwhelm us with the extent you went to to secure our salvation. How amazing your mercy is upon us. And I pray that we would be a people who are merciful. That our community would see us as merciful people. That our community would call us a church in the truest sense. And Lord, we know we can't manufacture this or do this on our own. We need a transformed heart and we thank you that Jesus offers that to us. And I pray for those who've never experienced the transformed heart through the person of Jesus that today they might enter in the kingdom through relationship with him. And for those of us who name the name of Christ, and look at our hearts and it's not quite changed as much as it should be. That Holy Spirit, you would take a hold of us in deeper and more profound ways each day. And we would surrender more and more of ourselves to you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you forgive and costly give. 
be merciful so that you will be shown mercy. Amen.